Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Everybody has a hidden talent, something that they can do that sets them apart from everyone else. It might be juggling, or playing a musical instrument, or singing, something they're not known for, but can break out at birthday parties or road trips. But it's rare for someone to make a living at their hidden talent, especially if it's one they might be ashamed of. Roland had one such talent, what we might call a knack for funny sounds— In fact, it was a skill that he parlayed into a gig as a court jester for King Henry II of England in the middle of the 12th century. The king was so enamored with Roland's ability that he gave him a large home in the village of Hemingstone in Suffolk, as well as 30 acres of land. So, what had Roland done to earn such a grand wage? He was required to perform for the king's court every Christmas in an act that was described as one jump, one whistle, and one fart. Roland, you see, was best known as Roland the Farter, and he was a professional flatulist. And he wasn't the only one. Hundreds of years earlier, stories had been written about people who could break wind at the drop of a hat. In Japan, between the 12th and 14th centuries, there were stories of a man named Fukutomi no Oribe, who performed elaborate fart dances for Japanese aristocracy. And the tradition continued well into the 1800s, Joseph Pujol from France certainly made a good living tooting his own horn. Joseph's father had been a sculptor, but probably didn't expect his son to go into such an explosive line of work. But Joseph did well for himself. He first discovered his unique talent at a young age while visiting the beach. He'd gone for a swim and had taken a deep breath before ducking under the water. As he floated beneath the sea, he felt something cold entering him from behind. He immediately ran out of the water only to find some of the sea leaking out of him the way it had come in. When he got older, he figured out that he could suck in air the same way. Joseph eventually found work as a baker, but he didn't let his day job get in the way of his passion. He often pretended to play musical instruments for the customers from behind the counter. Little did they know that he actually had turned his rear end into a special kind of trumpet. His daily performances led him to believe that he could parlay his skills from the bakery to the stage— Today, such an act would be seen as crass or lowbrow. Well, people thought the same thing back in 1887, too, and they loved it. His act grew so popular that he took it to Paris and began performing at the renowned Moulin Rouge. Dressed in a red coat and white gloves, Lupit Dumano, as he called himself, warmed things up with some light flatulence. He would call out each break of wind with a whimsical name or description— For example, he introduced the sound a bride might make at her wedding and then let out a tiny squeak. He also imitated a dressmaker ripping a long piece of fabric by ripping a fart that was 10 seconds long. He extinguished candles from several feet away, he played popular songs from his rear, and just as his forefathers had done hundreds of years earlier, performed for royalty from all over Europe. Joseph's piece de resistance, by the way, was his impression of a cannon blast, which he fired out of his behind with all his might. The good news was that none of his toots smelled, but that didn't stop women from fainting at the sound of them. 
It got so bad, nurses were hired to stand by and carry female guests into the hall after they'd passed out. Despite the dramatic response, though, Joseph packed them in at the Moulin Rouge. At his peak, he brought in 20,000 francs per show. Eventually, his act got so big he started touring on his own, performing for audiences until the start of World War I. The war efforts forced him into early retirement and back to his first love, baking. He even opened a biscuit factory in Toulon before his death in 1945. But don't worry, they were real, not air biscuits. Value, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Even though a certain object may not be worth a lot of money, it may have immeasurable sentimental value. A family photo album, a baby's blanket, and a high school football trophy won't earn anything from Sotheby's, but not having them would devastate their owners. But what does a person do when the thing they are given isn't only worth a lot of money, but priceless? Sal Dominic knew exactly what they would do. They'd hold on to it. Dominic was born in 1904 in Figueres, Catalonia in Spain, just along the French border. He took an interest in the arts, much to the chagrin of his father, who was a strict disciplinarian. His mother, however, supported her son's passions wholeheartedly. Dominic had also had an older brother who had died almost a year before he was born. Though he never met him, the weight of that child's death hung heavily among the family, including and especially on the young Dominic. As he got older, he was given the opportunity to truly explore his artistic side when he enrolled at the Municipal Drawing School at Figueres in 1916. Surprisingly, it was his father who turned the family home into a gallery the following year to support his son's endeavors. He put up his charcoal drawings for visitors to admire. Not long after, Dominic had a more traditional exhibition at a local theater. He started to discover himself in college in the early 1920s. He moved to Madrid and developed a new look for himself, one that was not met kindly by his classmates. He was an odd fellow who grew his hair out and wore a long coat with stockings. In other words, he dressed like a dandy. But he was talented, and he surrounded himself with others like himself. One of his deepest friendships was with Spanish poet and playwright Federico Garcia Lorca, which they maintained until Lorca's untimely death during the Spanish Civil War in 1936. In 1922, Dominic earned an art education like no other. He began spending his Sundays at the famed Prado Museum in Madrid, studying the paintings of the old masters. He'd sit and sketch, learning how they formed their shapes and used their colors. But the museum wasn't the only thing that had an influence on him. His own work was being shaped by the ever-changing art movements around him. Cubism had been popular in places like Paris, but hadn't yet made its way to Madrid. Dominic changed that, while also experimenting with more avant-garde movements like Futurism and Dada. As time went on, the young artist continued to hone his skills, meeting many of his contemporaries throughout his journey. These were painters who would go on to become legends in their own right, like Pablo Picasso and Joan Miro. And word of his talent soon began to expand beyond his circle of friends. Dominic's reputation often preceded him wherever he went. As he moved away from cubism and realism and deeper into surrealist imagery, the eccentric artist started creating his own personal style. He even moved beyond paintings into other mediums, such as film. Despite Dominic's success, his father resented his behavior. 
For one, the artist had entered into a relationship with a woman 10 years younger than himself. He had also exhibited a drawing that depicted an outline of Jesus Christ, titled, Sometimes I Spit with Pleasure on the Portrait of My Mother. The title had been a part of the persona he'd made for himself to fit in with his art scene friends. His father didn't care who he was trying to impress. His son had brought shame on the family. Dominic refused to apologize for the sketch. In turn, his father kicked him out of the home and removed him from his will. His father may have disapproved of them, but Dominic's paintings and drawings continued to gather acclaim, turning him into quite the celebrity. He often dined in upscale restaurants, surrounded by friends and peers as other diners gawked. Of course, those meals added up, and when the waiter would bring the check, Dominic had no compunctions about paying for the whole table. Now, being a celebrity, it wasn't unheard of for him to get a free meal every now and then. But for the instances when he would, in fact, have to pay the full amount, he came up with a foolproof way to avoid spending any money. He would take out his checkbook, write out the amount for the bill, and then sketch a little doodle on the back. In a way, he was making a bet that the restaurant wouldn't cash a check with a piece of original art by Sal Dominic, otherwise known as Salvador Dali. And more often than not, it was a bet he won. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.